Welcome back to another sermon with Daryl. We are continuing this series in Jonah. This is week two. If you have not yet listened to week one, I encourage you to pause here and check that out first. Today's message covers Jonah chapter two, and Daryl begins by reminding us of the overarching theme of this book, which is God's heart for the city and Jonah's struggle to accept that dimension of the God that he is called to serve. So Jonah flees in chapter one and is quickly reminded in chapter two, in the belly of a saving fish, that he cannot outrun God. For the bulk of today's message, Daryl zooms in on the moments in the fish. He focuses on Jonah's prayer, both what it reveals to us about the nature of God and what it shows us about how we can pray to him. Let me pass it off to Daryl for week two in the book of Jonah. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We are a community following Jesus with a heart for the city and beyond. That is how we speak of ourselves as a church whose gathering place, whose sanctuary is located in the downtown core of one of the greatest cities in the world. We are a community following Jesus with a heart for the city and beyond. Following Jesus, not just reading about Jesus, not just thinking about Jesus, not just singing about or to Jesus, but following Jesus. As we sang earlier in the service and as we sang last week, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you. Whom you love, I'll love. How you serve, I'll serve. If this life I lose, I will follow you. We are a community following Jesus, getting in line behind Jesus, staying close to Jesus, right on his heels with a heart for the city and beyond. With a heart for the city. I suggested last Sunday that we need to make a small adjustment in our identity and mission statement. A small adjustment with huge implications. I suggest we need to replace the article A with the pronoun his. That we change it from a heart for the city to his heart for the city. To Jesus' heart for the city. To the incarnate God's heart for the city. To the God-man's heart for the city. We are a community following Jesus. The living God in our flesh and blood with a heart, with his heart for the city. Now, nowhere else in scripture for me is his heart for the city more clearly revealed than in the Old Testament book of Jonah. The story of Jonah, a fishy tale that can be dismissed as a metaphorical tale. It is a story about God, as all the stories and all the books of the Bible are finally about God. More specifically, the story of Jonah is a story about God's heart. And even more specifically, the story of Jonah is the story about God's feelings. God's feelings for cities and especially for the seventh century before Christ city of Nineveh. A city which God himself calls the great city. 
Twice in the narrative, God says this is a great city in God's initial call in Jonah 1.1. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. And then in God's reiteration of that call in Jonah 3.1, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. Great in what sense? Architecturally, technologically, intellectually, culturally? Yes. But great in the sense of great to God. Great in the sense of much on God's radar screen. Genesis, I mean, Jonah 3.3. Jonah 3.3. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city or a very important city. But literally, it reads, a great city to God, an important city to God. I don't understand why there are no translations that get that. The text says it's a great city to God. Filled with human beings, 120,000, according to God's count, created in the image of the creator and then creating this magnificent city. The story of Jonah is the story about what the living God feels for that city. You see, not all was well in Nineveh, as is the case with every city, no matter how great. We know that in Jonah's time. Nineveh experienced significant social unrest, demonstrations on the streets. Famine was spreading. Floods rose, contaminating the city's water supply. There was growing immorality, corruption, injustice, and violence. An earthquake had come, shaken their sense of the world, and the monarchy itself was shaking. Jonah 1.1 Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it because its wickedness has come up to me. As I pointed out last Sunday, wickedness is only one way to translate the Hebrew word that God uses. A number of scholars now realize that the primary meaning of this word is trouble. Arise, go to Nineveh and preach against it because it's trouble has come to me. God cares for this great city because it is in trouble. For all of its magnificence, it's in trouble. And God feels for the city because the city is experiencing trouble. Jonah 4, 11. 120,000 people who do not know the difference between the right and left. It's a way of saying 120,000 people who do not know right from wrong. Not hard to imagine, is it? And as a consequence, in trouble, in difficult, in misery... Having left the living God out of the equation and having concluded that God's ways are now old fashioned, the city is in trouble and that troubles God. God does not want to see cities in trouble. God feels for cities in trouble. And the book of Jonah is all about God's feelings. It's all about God's desire to bring his people into his heart. It's all about Getting God's people to feel for the city what he himself feels for the city, which is what Jonah, the disciple, Jonah, the prophet does not want to do. Jonah does not want to feel what his God feels for the city. Jonah, the Jewish prophet, does not want to feel what God feels for Nineveh, the Gentile city. More than a mere Gentile city. Nineveh is the leading city of the Assyrian Empire, which wants to inflict and has inflicted great horror on Jonah's people, the northern tribes of Israel. 
The God of the Jews feels the trouble and misery of the enemy Gentile city. And Jonah does not want to feel what God feels. So Jonah runs in the opposite direction. He is in Jerusalem. Presumably that's where he received this word. Nineveh is east of Jerusalem. He heads west. He heads in exactly the opposite direction from God's call. Know anyone like that? And as we saw last Sunday in chapter one of Jonah, it does not work. It cannot work. No human being can do what Jonah tries to do. Flee the presence of Yahweh. It is impossible. Jonah knows Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Literally, it is. Where can I flee from your face? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, look, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, that is, as I travel at the speed of light, if I go to the remotest part of the sea, even there your right hand will lead me, even there your right hand will take hold of me. Which is what we see God doing in the second chapter of Jonah. The sailors on the ship heading in the opposite direction from Nineveh have in their mind, have in their minds, no choice but to throw this prophet overboard into the sea. They do not want to do it. Bless their hearts. They don't want to do it. But they concluded that Jonah has angered his God and that the storm at sea that is troubling them was due to Jonah's disobedience, to Jonah's sin. Jonah does not argue with their assessment. Jonah 1.12, for I know that on account of me, the great storm has come on you. And reluctantly, the sailors throw him overboard into the sea. Down he goes. Continuing the movement of his life that started when he sought to run from God down, 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 down to Joppa to get a ride to Nineveh, down into the hold of the ship to enter into unconsciousness so he doesn't have to think about God down into denial so he doesn't have to face reality that he knows and down into the sea way down all the way down. But. Even there, your right hand will lay hold of me. In his great mercy, God rescues the disobedient, downward descending prophet. God sends or appoints or provides a great fish. Great city, great fish. To come and swallow Jonah and thereby save him from certain death. It is then that Jonah prays. On his way down. In the belly of the fish, Jonah finally prays. Jonah 2.2, I called out of my distress to the Lord, to Yahweh. While on board the ship, the Gentile sailors called on their gods. The Jewish prophet did not. Jonah did not. The captain of the ship had ordered everyone to call on their gods. Jonah didn't do it. That's because Jonah is unhappy with his God because of God's feelings for the city that Jonah wants to see destroyed. When all the other passengers are in the storm tossed ship, we're calling out to their gods whom Jonah knew to be idols, the mere projection of human wish dreams. Jonah did not call on his God, whom he confesses to be the God of heaven. The maker of the sea and the dry land. But when he began to experience 
fully the inherent consequences of his sin, when he began to go down, 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 Jonah finally prays. No one went like that. And God hears Jonah's prayer and God acts on Jonah's behalf and by extension acts on behalf of the city whose troubles have also come up to God. Jonah prays from the belly of a great fish. Let's just take a few moments and indwell this prayer and and to explore it more fully. And, And let's do it in two phases. The first is, let's look at the God to whom Jonah prays. And then second, let's look at the prayer Jonah prays to this God. The God to whom Jonah prays is a God who feels, especially for those in trouble, and a God who is able to do something for people in trouble. The God who feels. As I said last Sunday, I'm using this word intentionally. I I know what I'm doing in using the word feel. I know what I'm saying when I say God feels. I know it's an emotion word. It's a deeply emotional word. We meet this fact about the living God in the early chapters of the grand story that is being told in the Bible. Israel is in Egypt, suffering under the injustice and cruelty of the great Pharaoh. God meets Moses, who had become the great leader of Israel, out in the desert in a bush that is burning. And God and Moses hears words which would forever change his perception of life. It's Exodus chapter three, verses seven to eight. Critical text for the understanding of the Old Testament, but especially the whole Bible. Exodus three, verses seven to eight. God says to Moses, I'm the God of your fathers. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And I have surely seen the misery of my people in Egypt. And I've heard them crying out because of their taskmasters. And I know their suffering and I have come down to rescue them from the troubles. The living God is the God who sees. Who sees our misery, who sees our trouble. The living God is the God who hears, who hears when people cry out in their troubles. The living God is the God who knows. I know their suffering. Now, the Hebrew word that is used here is the word yada. And to know in a yada way means to know more than cognitively. It's the word that's used to describe the intimate knowing of a husband and wife in sexual union. Yada involves this intimate knowing that is cognitive, but also visceral. It is mental, but is also emotional. I know their suffering. I feel their suffering. Now, I submit to you that this is what separates the Judeo-Christian God from all the other gods of all the other religions. Most religions will affirm four attributes of God. God is infinite, God is incomprehensible, God is indivisible, and God is impassable, or as the Greeks put it, apathetic, non-feeling. You see, for the Greeks, if God is to remain God, God cannot be affected by anything outside of God. 
God cannot be moved by anything outside himself. For in the Greek mind, that would imply that God might be able to be controlled by something outside himself. Therefore, God must not feel. God cannot experience emotions, whether pleasant or painful, which means God does not suffer. The divine one is impassable, apathetic, non-passionate, unfeeling. And this is the view held by most religions in the world today. So, for example, when our Muslim friends suffer, they can suffer for Allah, but not with Allah. Now, this view has also permeated its way into the Christian church. From the second century to the ninth century, the impassibility of God, the apathy of God, was a tenet of orthodoxy. The living God cannot be moved by the realities of life, by the troubles of human beings, and still be divine. Oh, the church fathers spoke of the love of God for broken human beings. But that love was an attribute, not a feeling. To say that God has the capacity to feel for or feel with others implies that God might be able to be controlled by reality outside of God's self. It was the German theologian Jorgen Moltmann who lived through the horror of the Nazi Holocaust who is helping the church regain a biblical view of God. Moltmann argues that the church's fathers from the second century to the ninth century, the church's theologians, made the mistake of recognizing only two alternatives, either God's essential incapacity for suffering or God's being subject to suffering if God did suffer. And Moltmann argues there's a third option, namely the voluntary laying oneself open to another, allowing oneself to be intimately affected by the other. At the burning bush, Israel discovers what Israel could never deduce. The living God chooses to be intimately affected by others. The living God opens God's self up to the pain of the world. God is infinite. God is incomprehensible. God is indivisible. But God is not impassable. God is not apathetic. I have seen. I have heard. I feel my people's pain. And then I have come down to deliver my people. I have seen. I have heard. And I feel. And I come down. All the way down in and as Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus clearly feels the pain. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. That is the God to whom Jonah prays from the belly of a fish. As Jonah goes down, down, down. He prays to a God who's going to go down, down, down with him. And Abel, the God to whom Jonah prays, is able, able to actually do something in the face of trouble. And this is what is being affirmed in the part of the story where God sends this great fish. This is the part of the story that's hardest to believe, is it not? (laughs) Except perhaps in chapter 3, when a whole city repents. A great fish swallowing a man, enabling this man to stay alive for three days and three nights. Really? Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the great reformer. 
This narrative seems almost unbelievable. Yea, sounds like a greater falsehood and folly than any fable of the poets. If it were not recorded in scripture, I would regard it as a ridiculous lie. So what are we to do in our time with this part of the story? Some have done some research into other non-biblical big fish stories. And people have discovered that some people have been swallowed by whales. And lived through the experience, albeit a bit shaken. <laughs> now, such storms help us realize that as amazing as the Jonah story is, such stories, I'm sorry, help us realize that as amazing as the Jonah story is, it is at least not totally absurd. But I think that misses the mark. That tact goes in the wrong direction. I know that the idea of God sending a great fish to rescue Jonah is, on some scientific presuppositions, unbelievable and incredible. But then, so is most of the grand story. I mean, where does the story begin? Before the burning bush. Where does this grand story begin? It begins with God and nothing. God and nothing. And what happens? Out of a nothing, God creates something. <laughs> something, yeah. Like this great creation we enjoy. God, nothing. Out of nothing, God brings into being seas and dry land, the sun and moon and stars, billions of them, animals and birds and, and human beings, you and me and every person in this city, out of nothing. And then the story continues on the same note. I mean, things happen in the rest of the story that are not supposed to happen. Things happen that no one ever thought would happen. The Red Sea is parted and millions of people walk across it on the dry land. Water gushes out of a rock in the desert for 40 years, 40 years. Every morning there's manna on the ground and quail every night. And on the story goes until we get to the part of the story where God literally comes down in and as Jesus of Nazareth. Conceived in a virgin's womb, touches blind eyes and makes them see, turns water into wine, frees people from demonic power, takes five loaves of fish Bread and two fish and feeds 5,000 people. He raises the dead. And on the story goes until we come to the heart of the grand story. When Jesus of Nazareth is crucified on a cross, he's buried, he's dead. But on Easter morning, the tomb is empty and he's alive. Take the so-called supernatural elements out of the grand story and it's no longer a grand story. In fact, take the supernatural elements out of this story and the story collapses. It's not even a good morality tale anymore because its chief character dies defeated. The God to whom Jonah prays is able. He's able to do what people say can't be done. He's able to do what no one expects to be done. Now, Jesus later on will point to the Jonah story and especially to the fishy part as a sign, a sign about himself. And it seems as though Jesus treats the, the fish 
in the same light that he treats his resurrection, God has now done something that no one can do. The God who feels for people in trouble is able to do something for people in trouble. That's the point of this story. And that is the God to whom Jonah prays. By this time, I should have had like 50 amens. Or another 50. That's cool. <laughs> anyway, we're Baptists. And what does Jonah pray? What does Jonah pray? Jonah prays a beautiful, poetic, hymn-like prayer. On his way down, in the belly of a fish, you might know that Jonah's prayer is also problematic to many people. They find it difficult, improbable, that a man who is about to drown can pray this way. And some have even suggested that you can scissor out this prayer in Jonah 2 and the story can still hold. One, three, four. Now, I hear the concerns, but praying the way Jonah prays is not that hard to conceive at all. For the simple reason that Jonah was steeped in the prayer book of Israel in the Psalms. Jonah grew up praying the Psalms. His parents taught him how to pray, praying the Psalms. And more to the point, as a prophet of Israel, he would also be steeped in the Psalms. The prophets had to know the Psalms. And I recently discovered what I hadn't learned before, that the Psalm, the, the, the prophets were expected to be able to compose Psalms. They were to be able to compose hymns. And that's why the works of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Micah are so full of psalm-like prayers and songs. In a crisis, in trouble, we pray what our minds and hearts were trained to pray, right? When the chips are down, we pray what our minds and hearts were trained to pray. Down in the depths, way down in the depths, in the sea, in the swirling chaos, or in a hospital room, we will pray what we've been trained to pray. Even if it's only, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Jonah prays the way he does in this poetic and hymn-like way because he was trained by the Psalms. To pray this way. Now, if you know the psalm prayers, you know that they are saturated, so to speak, with the image of falling down into watery chaos. It's all over the psalms. One scholar puts it way. The psalms are brimming, brimming with watery imagery. Not <laughs> like what he said. The psalms are aquatic prayers. <laughs> psalm 69. Save me, O Yahweh, for the waters have come up to my neck. Boy, I can feel that line. I sink in the miry depths where there's no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The flood engulfs me. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. I've prayed that many times. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me quickly for I'm in trouble. Having grown up on those kinds of prayers... Jonah has at his disposal all these words and images as he goes down, down, down. 
and his prayer follows the normal pattern of the prayer psalms. He names his trouble. He cries out in his trouble. God hears him in his trouble and acts on his behalf. And then Jonah gives thanks for God's mercy and grace in trouble. He names the trouble. I was sinking deeper and deeper. You hurled me into the sea, he says. Well, I thought the sailors had. Well, in the mystery of things, God is behind that. And Jonah knows that he deserved to have been hurled into the sea. Into the very hearts of the sea. The currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed wrapped around my neck. He feels the consequences of trying to run. Jonah 2.4 I have been banished from your sight, he says. At least that's what he thinks is the case. It is, after all, what he wanted when he bought a ticket for Nineveh. I sank to the roots of the mountains, way down there in the water. The earth beneath barred me in forever. He sees himself headed for what the ancient Near Easterns thought of this underworld, this city way down below the sea. Way down. And then he sees himself getting close to Sheol, to the place of darkness and the dead. Another Old Testament scholar expresses Jonah's trouble. Having attempted earlier to flee to Tarshish from God's presence, he now finds himself destined for shale where he will be permanently isolated from God. Jonah names the full extent of his trouble and then cries out to God. Jonah 2.2, in my darkness, in my distress, I called out to Yahweh. It is what Yahweh invites us to do right from the beginning of the story. Call out my name. Some of us are old enough to remember that old that, that song. You just call out my name and where you'll know wherever I am, I'll come running to you. Well, that's what Yahweh says. You just call out my name. Call it out. I love to hear my name. And when I hear my name, I run after it. Jonah 2.4. I've been banished from your sight, yet I look again to your temple. Jonah somehow knows that all we need to do in our trouble is look to God, look to God again. And in light of God coming down, we see in that temple the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jonah 2.7, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Yahweh. I called to you, Yahweh, I'm drowning. And God heard him. Jonah 2.2, he answered me. 2.2, you listened to my cry. 2.7, my prayer rose to you just as Nineveh's troubles are rising to God. 2.6, you brought me up from the pit, up from shale. Oh, Yahweh, my God, you brought me up. My God, my God. You see, Jonah's coming home. He's returning to the covenant. God had made this covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. Oh, Yahweh, my God, you brought me up from shale. You did not let me suffer the full consequences of my disobedience. Jonah experiences in that moment what God wants to do for Nineveh. He doesn't want Nineveh to experience the full consequences of their sin either. Jonah is rescued from the inherent trouble caused by his sinful choices. Jonah names the trouble. Jonah cries out to God in the trouble. God hears him in the trouble and acts in the trouble. And then, following the pattern of the Psalms, Jonah gives thanks for God's mercy 
Jonah 2, 9. I will sacrifice to you. I will offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And note that he does that while he's still in the belly of the fish. Even though it's a smelly place, he knows this is the place of salvation for him. And he's grateful. And Jonah then reaffirms his vows. 2, 9. What I have vowed, I will now make good. As a disciple, as a follower, as a prophet, he long ago one day said to Yahweh, I will go where you want me to go. I will do what you want me to do. It's what we as disciples, we as followers have also said in our baptisms and on other occasions, I will go where you want me to go. I I will do what you want me to do. Jonah still does not want to go to Nineveh. He does not want Nineveh to experience grace and mercy, even though he just experienced it in spades. He doesn't want to go, but he wants to keep his vow. I think Jonah can sing the song we've been singing. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you. Whom you love, I will love. (laughs) Not quite yet. (laughs) Now Jonah says, no, no, no. (laughs) I can't sing that line, but I did promise I would go. And he keeps his vow. And then he gathers the whole prayer under that great declaration. Jonah 2.10. Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is of Yahweh. Of course. Those two words always belong together. Yahweh and salvation. For Yahweh is salvation. And when he comes to earth, he takes the name Jesus, Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Because the God to whom Jonah prays is the God who feels. God hears Jonah's prayer. And because the God to whom Jonah prays is the God who is able, God acts to save Jonah. Because the living God, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, feels for people in trouble, he hears our cry in trouble. And because the living God, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, is able, he comes into our trouble And he does for us what we could have never imagined. Like sending a great fish. And like raising the crucified Jesus from the grave. It seems to me that the only response to a text and sermon about prayer is to pray. You might be here and you might be experiencing some very significant trouble. And what I'd invite you to do now is a little risky to do, but I sense this is the right thing to do. I would invite you to just put up your hand if you are facing some significant trouble. Or if you have a loved one who is in trouble, just put up your hand. It doesn't have to be high. So that people around you can see that hand. And then would those of you look and see who has a hand up. And will you gather to pray for those people. Okay. Can can you do that? You, You can pray. Just follow Jonah. Lord have mercy on this person in trouble. Okay. You see the hands. And you don't be shy. Just 
gather around those folks who have their hands up. Now more hands are going up. They want to be prayed for. Back behind you, George. Okay. And just pray for a season and then I will pray. You might have been too shy to put up your hand. So, just in the quiet, name the trouble you're facing or the trouble your loved one's facing. Just, just name it. And then cry out on behalf of that person or out for yourself. Oh Lord, oh Yahweh, hear me in my distress. Oh dear God, thank you for the book of Jonah. Thank you for opening yourself up to us. Thank you for revealing that you are not a God who is distant from us, but you are right here in the thick of it all and you feel it with us. And thank you for demonstrating that you're able to do something, to do something about the trouble. We don't need to tell you that all over there's trouble. And and we don't need to tell you that many people don't know how to call out to you, so we do it for them. Lord, hear their cry and be this wonderful, great God to them. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've been singing a song to God, to the Lord Jesus over the last couple of weeks, and I think the benediction is he's going to sing it back. I won't sing it, but he's going to sing it back to us. I will follow you where you go I'll go where you stay. I'll stay when you move. I'll move. I will follow you whom you love. I'll love how you serve. I'll outserve you. If this life you lose, I give you mine. I follow you all the way. You can't get away. I'll follow you.